Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Timothée Parikh to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Timothée is a social scientist originally from Versailles in France. He holds a PhD in economics from the Centre d'études de recherche sur le développement en France and the Stockholm Resilience Centre. His dissertation entitled The Political Economy of Degrowth explores the economic implications of the ideas of degrowth. Timothée is currently writing a book adaptation of his PhD dissertation. So thank you very much, Timothée, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a pleasure. Excellent. So um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, content of your new book, some of the ideas you're working with, it, which I think are based on a thesis you did, and also some of your recent articles and research focusing on degrowth, focusing on momentum around the underlying ideas and what that means and what we could hope for there. Um, maybe just to begin, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, what you do. Yes, so my name is uh, Timothée Paric, as you can uh, hear, that's French, and I'm an economist. I've been trained in ecological economics, partly in Sweden and partly in France. And I've been for the last six or seven years studying uh, that concept of, of degrowth in various universities, mostly University of Stockholm, um, Clermont-Ferrand University in France and the University of Barcelona. So most of my work now revolves more generally about ecological economics, meaning the objective of better understanding the link between economies and nature, but very specifically about the task of degrowth, and we'll spend plenty of time to explain what that is, but all the economic implications of uh, a degrowth transition having to do with, for example, financing the welfare state or managing to create jobs or invest in new companies, all of these uh, important details. Um, can you just maybe also uh, give us a sense of what's on your mind? There's all kinds of crises. We've still got the COVID, there's the invasion uh, in, in Ukraine and, and, and various related issues and crises. From, a, from an ecological perspective, what is it that most worries you about this moment, would you say, Timothy? So when you're an ecological economist, you're studying economies as embedded in nature, which means you need to listen very closely to what sustainability scientists tell you. That also means that when there's an IPCC report coming out, that is first priority. So as you know, the, the latest AR6 uh, came out, especially the, the mitigation part of the report, um, 
10 days ago, something like this. So right now in my mind, it's really these newest numbers about climate change, which actually I think now I'm stopping to refer to it as climate change, which is a bit too mild and I prefer to call it climate breakdown. So in my mind right now, I've got these new numbers and more than numbers, I've got all the mechanisms that you can read about in the IPCC report, especially the report of uh, working group number one about what they call uh, tipping points and a potentially global cascade of tipping points. So tipping points of, for example, the Amazon rainforest, the boreal forest, the Greenland ice sheet, Arctic and Antarctic sea ice, the Atlantic circulation, coral reefs, all of these biophysical ecosystems that could, if something goes wrong, completely accelerate a climate breakdown. And so after reading that report, and you know, that was 10 days ago, I've just been having this vision of the climate as a ticking bomb that is getting increasingly difficult to diffuse. So on my mind, now I've, I've got this you know, this vision of us humans like trapped inside a giant car with the exhaust pipe stuck inside. inside. So it's, it's suffocatingly scary. And it's a, it's a thought you cannot evacuate. So I'm afraid that that, that um, fear of climate change is, is going to stay in my mind for a while. Yeah, yeah. What makes you optimistic? I know you've been uh, uh, tweeting and, and, and writing about some aspects of IPCC, uh, this, this latest report, some aspects of, of thinking about a post-growth or degrowth environment. I guess that would be one thing. But uh, uh, what seeds... Would, would you say that just rise to optimism when you look at the situation, if any? <sighs> okay, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something very uncool. Um, but like right now, thinking about this question, nothing makes me optimistic. So everything I read is a source of despair. <laughs> I mean, Im imagine as an ecological economist, my daily routine consists in assessing damage an injustice in a world that has been getting worse since basically I was born. Uh, I don't think it's quite sustainable to do this because then you get depressed, you get a, you know, climate anxiety and all of that. But that corresponds quite fairly to the state of the world. And so that's my first point. Like if you're a sustainable, sustainability scientist and you keep bumping on good news that makes you optimistic, you're not looking at where the real problem is. I'm seeing this, it's, it's quite a depressing thought, but I'm saying this in support with all the scientist rebellion movement, those scientists that have gotten to a point of despair so uh, concerning that, you know, they just left university, left their desk and went to chain themselves on banks or to block roads so that, you know, people listen to the climate emergency. So it's very, very difficult to be optimistic, but I know that we need to find source of optimism. So one of my silver lining, one of, of the little distant light in my cloudy climate life right now is the fact that the IPCC report mentioned degrowth, not only mentioned, but discussed degrowth, because I think we can turn this into a massive opening to fast forward the climate discussion into finding solutions that actually work. What is degrowth, Timothy? I like to define it as a democratic reduction 
of production and consumption that is ecologically sustainable and socially just and which improves well-being. So in, in that phrase, you get basically four elements. Uh, the first one is, you know, the sustainability aspect. If you cannot green growth, you have no other choice than to reduce production and consumption. But of course, this needs to be done in a way that is actually ecologically effective. So you're not reducing all the same thing in the same level. So element one is sustainability. Element two is social justice. So in the way you're going to organize this degrowth, well, it will have to target certain countries more than others. And within these countries, it will have to target certain households more than others. So sustainability, social justice brings us to a third element about well-being. So the idea of degrowth is that switching to a need-focused economy will be better in terms of well-being than the money-focused capitalist economy we have now. So this in the literature is associated with concept of voluntary simplicity, alternative hedonism, and minimalism. So the fact that somehow even though we reduce the amount of stuff we personally own, well, we can still have benefits in terms of well-being because we share them, because perhaps we have more available free time because we can then work less collectively and we can spend that free time in doing things that improve our well-being better than just working very often in a job that we don't like and that we've not chosen. So sustainability, social justice, well-being, and that brings us with the fourth and final feature that reduction of production and consumption is not just uh, accidental. It doesn't happen from the outside. It's democratic. It's planned. As you can imagine, you know, making these decisions of what to reduce first and for whom and where and how to make it just and, you know, to make sure that that's going to still correlate with a good quality of life, uh, you cannot decide it from the top down. It's something where you need to have everyone around the table and making these big decisions of political economy. So that's why when I describe degrowth, I'm always adding the democratic reduction of production and consumption so that we make a difference from just an organized degrowth that improves well-being, reduces inequality, and you know, lead us to a sustainable world and just a recession that is just hitting the, the poorest first, that is just slashing green investment, and that is just being terrible for well-being. Right, right. Um, looking forward to talking to you about some of those policies and to discuss in detail what 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 degrowth looks like and practice and so forth. And I suppose um, uh, maybe a good place to start is, and I spoke to Stephen uh, Mascara, I mean, I spoke to a few people about this, but the enduring attraction of ideas of economic growth, um, it's, you know, associated with all kinds of uh, uh, good things uh, or has been presented as such in terms of economic uh uh, welfare standards of living, jobs, and all kinds of things like that, and uh, has grown dominant, notwithstanding the fact that, that there seems to have been in the in the sixties and seventies some strong critics and people raising questions about this idea of growth and the idea, I suppose, of uh, particularly of, of of limitless growth. Yeah. Okay. So I mean. If we come back in the past, at least to 1972, there's the Meadows report. We talk about it now because it's, it was exactly 50 years ago. And that was the birth of something that we now refer to as an objection to growth. 
So it was a bit like this, you know, ecologists and sustainability scientists started to worry about seeing exponential rates of economic growth. That was the first phase, the birth of environmental concerns and these concerns being put in relation to, for, to, to, to increasing GDP. At the beginning of the 2000s, this discussion evolved with the concept of degrowth emerging in France and slowly spreading in Spain and Switzerland and Quebec and Italy and then after 2008 in English-speaking countries. So that was not only an objection to growth, just not only criticizing economic growth as being ecologically sustainable, socially unfair and unfit to satisfy needs for high-income countries, but also just the task of just we had to just reduce the sheer scale of or impact on nature in these countries that had grown grown a lot since the 1970s. That was what I like to call like phase two. Phase one, objection to growth. Phase two, degrowth. And now we're moving into a third phase. Not that the second phase is just achieved with not being degrowing, but I think we've clarified within that discourse that this is necessary. And now the third phase is about post-growth. Post-growth being this discussion about, okay, what will happen once we've managed to shrink back our economies to a sustainable level? How will we manage to prosper without growth? How will we manage to create jobs, to organize pension schemes and all the other things we need an economy to do in an economy that will basically be stationary in GDP and biophysical terms? So... Here you have the the three main evolutions of that debate. And what has changed a lot is that in the 70s, it was considered really radical to make such a claim. Like any economist will laugh at you being like, come on, the economy being dependent on nature. Have you learned nothing? Are you Malthusians or something? Malthus was wrong. Everyone knows this. So they will laugh at you. Beginning of the 2000s, they will still laugh at you, but on a different basis. They will be like, oh, degrowth nice your value of of more sharing of organizing you know convivial local economies but that's absolutely unnecessary because economies are decoupling we have green growth now and so if growth is green what's the point of actually shrinking production and consumption so that one's the debate during the 2000s and 2010s and this now is changing because evidence against decoupling is now just abounding. So just all the numbers that we have show that we have not decoupled to the level. Can I ask you just to clarify, recent article you asked this question, you know, has economic growth in developed countries decoupled from environmental pressures? Um, what's at stake here? Okay, so decoupling is the idea of dissociating the rise of GDP, so what we call economic growth, and the rise of environmental pressures. So your use of natural resources, water, soil, your impact on biodiversity, on air pollution, and of course, on greenhouse gas emissions. So the idea of green growth would be that growth of GDP that will be disconnected of its impact on nature. And of course, as of now, if you're living in an you know, high-income nation is not only a matter of just not having any extra impact. You need to actually decrease your emission. You need to decrease the amount of materials your economy is using. So some economists 
I've been defending the idea that you could still produce and consume more, GDP goes up, and decrease resource use and greenhouse gases. So that was a bit of an hypothesis. They posited that, you know, with the right kind of eco-innovations, with the right kind of circular economy, of bioeconomy, if we manage to transition fast enough to renewable energy, somehow we will, we may manage to reach this absolute decoupling where GDP keep going up and environment pressure, pressures go down. The evidence I was referring to is that uh, they don't. A handful of countries in the world have managed to achieve what we call, you know, uh, relative decoupling. No, what, what I meant to say is like relative decoupling is a fairly uh, usual situation in the sense of countries get more efficient in their use of natural resources. But, sin but since they're getting also so much bigger, the total amount of environmental pressure keep increasing. So that's not a solution if you're uh, listening to the IPCC. What we want is actual emissions cut. And when you look at these few countries, uh, two handfuls, that have managed to cut emissions while increasing GDP growth, you realize that these cuts were very, very, very tiny. And very often, you know, did, did not include imported emissions and all the time did not include, you know, other impact on nature than just greenhouse gas emissions. So that's the new numbers we have that tell us that actually that decoupling we would need to see in order to make further economic growth in high income nation green just has not been delivered. Right, right. I, I, I would like to discuss this question of uh, the relationship, I suppose, between green growth and, and degrowth. Why is it different to talk about and to think about degrowth? And some people would say, well, actually, the problem is it's the consumer society. It's, it's the lifestyles we're leading. It's the fact that we are, you know, uh, embedded in a world where we're always buying things. And other people might say, well, actually, it's just capitalism. It's, you know, so, so uh, why don't we just, you know, get rid of capitalism? And I guess I'll throw in the other one. People would say, well, why don't we just focus on the really bad part of it, which is the, the carbon intensive activities? Why don't we just say decarbonization rather than degrowth um so a few different ideas that i'm just wondering uh what you think well let me start with the latest one so decarbonization instead of degrowth let's say you want to decarbonize your transport sector so one way of doing this is to you know exit all fossil uh, cars and replace them with electric cars if you do this somehow and assuming that you get a low carbon source of electricity, you've decarbonized your economy. But you've only displaced the problem because you need from six to ten more times more materials to manufacture an electric car than you do for a fossil car. So you've decoupled the production of car from carbon, but you've recoupled the production of car from resource use. These resources most of them will not be extracted on your domestic territory. They will be extracted elsewhere in the world. And that elsewhere in the world is very likely that it's going to use fossil fuel to extract the minerals. In extracting these minerals, you're not only going to use fossil fuel. You will use also water and all kinds of forms of energy. And you will create all kinds of forms of water, air pollution, and all kinds of impact on biodiversity. Presumably, when you're talking about something like that, people have done some kind of carbon footprint analysis. They, you know, 
are you suggesting that people are saying, well, you know, uh, you, you've got the you know electric cars and things and, and almost deliberately or blindly overlooking some of the other environmental impacts? And is it not possible that some of the, you know, that, yes, there will be, you know, uh, rare earth minerals and, and other things like that, which will be under pressure. But but the trade off is worth it because we'll be reducing carbon significantly. And yeah, OK, there may be more mining and other things like that, but that's a price worth paying. But that's that's what I'm wondering. Price to pay for what? The if if you manage somehow, I think the task of degrowth, and that's also the task of you know sufficiency, as that's the concept I, the IPCC use to express the idea of degrowth, is to decouple well-being from resource use. So what you want is not a car. What we want is mobility services. What we want is you know satisfy our needs to go from A to B. If we can manage to do this in a way that uses less material in general, I'm, I'm just taking the example of car sharing because it's easy here, then that, that sufficiency, that first part of sufficiency, it's great because it means we have to produce, we, we will produce less car and then, you know, we can faster green the production of these car and we're less likely to have this unwanted a rebound effect and unwanted, you know, consequences having to do with water use and biodiversity loss. So I, I guess the main argument of degrowth is to say the faster and the bigger the degrowth of production and consumption in the first place, the easier the greening of that uh, resulting smaller economy. And, and what about the question of, of capitalism itself? Because uh, sometimes uh, I guess there's a risk of looking at degrowth it sounds quite technical. It sounds quite technocratic. It sounds, you know, uh, to do with economics. It is to do with economics. Um, and uh, that, that might be an issue in terms of it being taken up by, by the public. Um, and this, I guess, is another question which we can talk about later is, you know, where these decisions are made, how these decisions you know, about these kinds of policies that kind of, I don't know whether there's an equivalent to the Overton window, but the kind of ideas that are willing to be accepted and considered. And, and I guess that brings us to the, the point you, you, you make about, about the IPCC report and why, why you think this is particularly uh, notable, um, given uh, previous reports and given previous ways, even quite recently, in which ideas of degrowth have been treated. Yeah. Okay, so that I'm, I'm going to take that question in, in three parts. First, I want to say something about the relation of degrowth to, you know, critics of capitalism and consumerism. Then I'll talk a bit about the complicatedness of the concept and whether it's appealing to the people. And then, then we can move on to the IPCC. So on the first point, I mean, you can end capitalism without ending growth. I mean, the Soviet Union was a productivist growth-based economic system that wasn't capitalist, but it wasn't sustainable either. Same situation for countries today like North Korea, not a capitalist country, not sustainable either. And China, to some extent, not capitalism either, but also a productivist growth-based economy. So here, we need to broaden we need to integrate the critique of capitalism because for sure, if you're getting rid of growth, if you want to build an economy that can prosper without growth, capitalism won't be fitting to do this. Why? Because just in very abstract 
term here, and we're not being ideological, it's just capitalism very descriptively as an economic system is a system wired to accumulate. So that's something it does very well. If you want to accumulate stuff, that's great. But if you want to deaccumulate, if you want to degrow, well, then capitalism is going to be more of a, an obstacle than anything. About consumerism, it's, it's, it is a bit unfair today to point at you know, what are called lifestyle, life, lifestyle emissions and asking people to consume less in a productivist, GDP-obsessed economy where every single company is just you know, trying to sell you more. And when a huge part of environmental pressures are actually happening at the stage of the mode of production. So it's not whether you consume or not, it's rather the decisions being made about the mode of production. So here, this is why when I will define degrowth later, I will always say it's a reduction of production and consumption. So it's both two sides of the same coin, but production comes first because it's not a lifestyle choice of people that will decide to all of the sudden stop consuming. It's a democratic decision to somehow consume less together and so therefore producing less together. So what makes degrowth special here is I would say that it's a multi-dimensional critique of today's economy and that's perhaps why the concept is getting popular. It's that people now we don't want to choose between you know being like an hardcore eco-Marxist and shooting at capitalism or you know being shooting at globalization or shooting at corporations or shooting at um, advertisement and the culture of consumerism. We need these kind of um, multi-layered concepts that allow you to connect this different criticism to basically uh, study the possibility of sustained change. So degrowth as such, you know, is, is in the same time a critique of unsustainable extractivism, but also a critique of misguided productivism, misguided because that's a productivism that fails at satisfying needs, a productivism that is centered on maximizing exchange value, so money and not just need satisfaction. Also a critique of you know, what we call commercialism, so this constant commodification of social relations. Uh, also a critique of consumerism and a critique of industrialism and you know, when technology becomes more of a master than a tool, so, and there are a few more in, the, in that, but all of those together, they form degrowth. And that's what I quite like about the concept, because it doesn't swipe problem under the rug, but confront all of them head on at once. And I, I think today is, is not the time to decide whether we want to change consumption or production or if it's a problem here or there. We need systemic vision over the whole system and we need systemic alternatives to that whole system. So that was the first part of the question. Um, okay, th then the second about growth. Degrowth being abstract. Okay, so now I want to make a small comment about economic growth. So I've been studying economics, I'm, I'm rather young, I've been studying economics for only 15 years and I've spent the last let's say, solid six years studying degrowth, which means, you know, half of that time was spent studying economic growth, trying to better understand how it's calculated, what happens, how does it happen, how do people understand it happens, what do people think about it. And I can tell you, after all these years, full-time studying that phenomenon, the more 
now I get to a sense that it's even more complicated than I thought it was. And I can say with absolute confidence that 99% of people and even something like 80% of economists do not understand what economic growth is. In France, and that's the same for every country in the world, you only have a handful. There are about 50 people in France, you know, that are tasked with calculating GDP. Those are the only ones that really understand, you know, what GDP is. So when you ask people whether they like growth, whether they want more growth, they would say yes, because they somehow assume that growth, economic growth means progress. It means more purchasing power. It means perhaps more jobs. It means, you know, more liberty in general, more well-being. But in the book, I call this the false promises of economic growth. Actually, GDP in many high-income countries absolutely decorrelated from all these things people expect from it. Economic growth does not eradicate poverty, does not reduce inequality, very often doesn't create jobs, uh, does not contribute to improving well-being, and it has a very, very complex relations with uh, public budgets. So... When we talk about degrowth, I agree with you that we also locate ourselves in that very fuzzy uh, economistic realm of talking about growth and degrowth of things we don't quite understand. But what I, I find refreshing in the degrowth literature is that is a literature that has not been colonized and monopolized by economists. So actually the, the questions are quite concrete and I'll give you three, you know, perhaps the most important questions right now is just what to produce, at what level to produce it, and how to produce it. These kind of questions that economists have not been asking for the last 50 years because we kind of assume that any kind of production should always go up, that you know the way it should be produced is always a way that just makes production most profitable. And that somehow, you know, any kind of technology that would help you to do this uh, was good. Now, if the goal is not growth of GDP anymore, we need to be asking a lot of concrete questions. And I, I, I feel that people, they like this concreteness. Because when they think about the economy, they don't want to be smoked with abstract jargon. The economy is us collectively organizing our contentment, the satisfaction of our needs. And so... Degrowth and more generally this idea of, you know, talking about the democratization of the economy, talking about needs-based, well-being economies, is a way of opening that debate, which has been captured by experts for decades. Opening up that debate and also, um, let's say, making that debate accessible, in, and that's what I'm, I'm doing a lot of that in my work, clearing out a lot of um, jargon and bullshit theories. And I, here I'm not using the word lightly, like decoupling, green growth. These hypotheses that have been around since the 1990s have no scientific validity at all. And so, but they're so widespread. Another one is the trickling down hypothesis. As a country get rich, you know, the richer of that country, you know, uh, accumulate some wealth, and that wealth is going to trickle down to the poorest. This hypothesis has been falsified everywhere all the time, but still people use it in discourse uh, to justify the continuation of economic growth. Right, very interesting. 
Um, and I talked to Stephen Masakura a little bit about this, and I've forgotten the name of the Pakistani economist, uh, very interesting, I think in the 60s and early 70s, who was maybe one of the first to, to point to this, that on its own terms, economic growth wasn't delivering the promises that was there, never mind before you get into all these other questions of the, the side effects and so forth. And I do want to come back to this a little bit as well before the end, certainly, um, because there does seem to be considerable momentum to, you know, so the idea being that, you know, uh, the environmental problems are due to externalities and uh, nature is not being fully valued or it's not been included in the models and, and this tremendous momentum towards natural capital accounting. Now, I, I'd like to come back to that, um, but just to continue what your, your the, tra- the train of thought there, what you were saying, uh, can you maybe just talk about why you think the IPCC recent report is benchmark in, in some respects with respect to degrowth and, and post-growth ideas. How it framed this maybe earlier and h- how you would hope that these ideas would, would now be, to some extent, I guess, accepted or travel within the policy community. Mm. Okay, so the latest IPCC report is number six. The first one was in 1990. And each IPCC report is um, divided into three parts, three working groups. Um, one on the physical science, one on adaptation, one on mitigation. Degrowth has been mentioned in the AR6 in, by the second working group, so in the adaptation report, and by the third working group in the mitigation report. So that's already historical in the sense of, as you know, the IPCC is this massive review of literature, 278 authors for the case of the mitigation report, something eight years into the making that swipes through all sciences, social and natural, and parts of humanities, and just bring back valuable insight for that big challenge that is the mitigation adaptation to climate change. So the fact that degrowth shows up is, is a is a nice validation somehow that the idea is not just some fabulations of, of, of radicals that are just somehow not uh, thought hard enough about the numbers like economists have. When you say showed up, um, surely with this kind of widespread, uh, just the coverage of, of a report like this, it's going to include all kinds of ideas, you know, what suggests what what is the the strongest would you say vindication of these ideas so what's really new about the mitigation report and something that has never happened in any of the previous five mitigation report is now this time there's a full chapter on demand that's chapter 5 okay and so usually the mitigation climate mitigation problem was always approached from a supply side perspective so today we for example produce uh, electricity with fossil fuels and we need to produce electricity with renewables that's the challenge for the first time now we understand that it's not only a production problem it's also if we can manage to reduce our energy consumption in the first place Well, that's great because the most renewable energy is the one we don't have to produce. So the fact that you have a full chapter on demand, that's the one where they mobilize the concept of sufficiency. And they call it, you know, demand side measures, demand side strategies, radical reduction of demand, all of this. But you understand how that relates to degrowth in the sense of degrowth is a planned reduction of production and consumption. So it's really going in the same direction. So you have this whole chapter five, which is 100 pages uh, in the mitigation report, where you find, and, and I've written an article about it, 
on my blog, timotheparic.com, to dissect this chapter and to also look at where degrowth is being used in that report and the one before. And you see that it pops up in different places, either using the actual word or not using it. Um, for example, now I've got a, a passage I can quote from chapter 5, which I quite like. That's the uh, mention, the only mention of the word degrowth in chapter 5. There are seven mentions of degrowth in the work group number 3, a report on mitigation. So that's one of them. Quote, consumption reductions, both voluntary and policy-induced, can have positive and double dividend effects on efficiency as well as reductions in energy and material use. A low carbon transition in conjunction with social sustainability is possible, even without economic growth. Such degrowth pathways may be crucial in combining technical feasibility of mitigation with social development goals. So when you read this in the IPCC report, for me, I, I, I think that's a game changer. But you may say, well, okay, well, that's just one little sentence out there. What's important in the mitigation report is uh, the focus on chapter five. That's really what's new. And then you can link it to degrowth. But there's something else I want to point out in the adaptation report that is quite uh, remarkable. In the last chapter, chapter 18 of the adaptation report, the authors do a, a bit of a panorama of visions of development. So they, they name five and you know, there's the first one from the 1950s. So economic growth based development, and then it moves on to the capabilities approach to inclusive development. And they give the fifth one, which they call development as post growth. And here it's not only just a little naming or what, it's just in the full category, they explain the ideas of these people from what we call post development have conceptualized prosperity beyond economic growth and in conjunction with a degrowth of standards of living in high income countries. And I've got a, a, a quote from, from, this, uh, from this part. Uh, should, should I read it too? Yes, please, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so here's the quote from, from chapter 18 of the Adaptation Report. Over the past decade, ecological economists and political scientists have proposed degrowth and managing without growth as a solution for achieving environmental sustainability and socioeconomic progress. Such concepts are a deliberate response to concerns about ecological limits to growth and the compatibility between growth-oriented development and sustainability. Sustainable degrowth is not the same as negative GDP growth, which is typically referred to as a recession. Degrowth goes beyond criticizing economic growth. It explores the intersection among environmental sustainability, social justice, and well-being. End of quote. So that, imagine, that is in an IPCC report. Yes, well, that's, that, that, that's fascinating and, and really interesting. And it's not something I talked about on the podcast, but I think it's quite interesting. And maybe you might have a thought on, uh, it's something that does seem to be somewhat neglected, is the power of the, the underlying economic models. 
in the IPCC analysis generally, the kinds of uh, paradigms, economic paradigms, economic ideas that are embodied in that generally. Yeah, it's we see this quite clearly in the mitigation report in the way, you know, they do the scenarios for the future. I mean, historically, before this moment, maybe considering, as you say, more of the demand side as well. But there, this is a critique that some people have made and said that, you know, embodied is this question of the models, the economic models, the assumptions. Uh, Nordhaus, the Nobel Prize, problematic perspective on these questions that the figures on which his analysis are based or not, or and, and generally the kind of uh, assumptions that the economists have been making. Here I can share a funny story. Uh, I was invited uh, a couple of weeks ago to present the idea of degrowth to the Conseil Général de l'Économie of, of the economy minister here in France, that the highest instance uh, of economic expertise that gathers all the people, all the economists, all the chief economists that have worked at the governments, uh, basically that are still alive. So you have all those people in the last 50 years who have done everything they can to organize a growth-based economy. And so I get in the room and, and I, I was just petrified because I'm like, these people are just going to eat me alive. And I explain, you know, this, this, this idea of of the new understanding we have of economic growth now that we know that the economy is more embedded in nature than we thought, and now that we have better data to understand actually the real social and ecological impact of GDP. And, and I've realized that those people, like in, in that moment, there's a bit of, a, of an, an ego problem because that 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 means basically that the way we've been doing economics for as long as we've been doing economics with models so you know basically since the invention of macroeconomics in the 1930s has been just um wrong like not wrong in the sense of oh you know we've been improving it's like we made certain uh theoretical decisions like the one of not having nature in a function of production that are not, that means that the great majority of models, neoclassical models and theories that we've been using to study the climate crisis are obsolete. And so that means also the IPCC is not creating new models. It goes there and find what's already there. So yes. of course, in the way that they're going to depict the economy, they're going to pick up, you know, the 90%, the 90 of neoclassical theories that have been overpowering the field of, of economics for, for decades. And, and people like Steve Keen, uh, that has done a, a brilliant criticism of Nordau's modeling, showing that, you know, scientifically, if, if you look at the thing now, it just has absolutely no use in um, helping us to, you know, make the kind of decisions that will be effective in mitigating climate change. So now there's this huge realization that somehow the pair of glasses we've been using to look at the problem have been just, you know, all foggy. And, and now that we've cleaned the glasses and we see completely different and we don't have much time to, to change it now. So this is why like the IPCC report now has opened a crack and we can use this crack somehow to quickly, you know, gather the best theories we, we have around. So admit the fact that somehow our economic models were completely insufficient and now let's go fetch the best theories we have in Marxian economics, in feminist economics, in ecological economics, 
in institutional post-Keynesian economics and in you know everywhere else in the social sciences and use that kind of multi-dimensional understanding of the economy to make better decision than the one, one we were making with neoclassical models, which were basically just push the GDP button and <laughs> until all social and ecological problems are solved. Yeah, I guess I just need to raise this point, which p- people do talk about, which is the degrowth paradigm or the degrowth model, the way of looking at the world when it comes to India and China, countries that have you know, major uh, population and poverty questions, um, development issues that are very different, and also economies that are huge. I saw a report, it was a carbon brief, that said just China's economic activity will push us by t- in, in the next, I think, 20 years over two degrees. You know, that just that one, just China alone. Uh, first, a bit, a bit of context, because since the 1970s, so people that have been talking about the unsustainability of high-income nations of the global north, that have been pointing to the global north as the driving engine of ecological breakdown, they've often been faced uh, with what has become, you know, what we now call the discourse of climate delay, with this kind of response of, you know, pointing to the dirty populous south as a problem instead of... uh, problematizing the imperial mode of living of rich nations. So now we need to be very careful in the sense of there is a heavy responsibility uh, in, in ecological breakdown in early industrialized nations. I hear like now we have numbers to show this. I'm, I'm just going to point to two studies that are uh, absolutely essential published by Jason Hickel and a few colleagues, that show that high-income countries, so only 16% of world population live in high-income countries, they're responsible together for 74% of resource use in excess of a sustainable threshold. And the same group is responsible also for 92% of greenhouse gas emissions in excess of the 350 ppm threshold. So first there's this historical responsibility uh, that we need to take into account. So then the problem of unsustainable modes of production and consumption in the global north requires solving on its own. Of course, that does not mean we should, you know, just focus on that and forget the rest. But it does mean that these countries are in a unique context compared to newly industrialized countries like China or even more so India. Personally, I'm not an expert in these countries. I mostly work in the context of France, which I think fits quite well when you work about degrowth. I would feel a bit uneasy, you know, if I were a, a, a dietitian, a, a doctor specialized on, on putting people on diet. You know, I would not want to work with, with malnourished people if my specialty is obesity. As a degrowth economist, I'm a specialist in economic obesity. And so, therefore, I mostly work with overshooting rich countries. And especially these overshooting rich countries, which have already, you know, accumulating enough resources to kind of like solve problems of poverty. So when you look at France, uh, the remaining poverty we have is not a matter of, you know, production. It's just a matter of of distribution, which is not the case uh, in a country like India would still need to yeah, produce yeah, certain things to, yeah, to meet yeah. their needs. But here I want to make another point. Like what, the, what a country like India need or the remaining part of, of China where needs remain unmet is to somehow gain the 
capability of satisfying their needs. So remember before we're discussing about that, now the, the, the debate should shift from the useless discussion of how do we decouple GDP from environmental pressures, which we should not care much about because, well, GDP is already decoupled from well-being. So this is not a GDP question. The question is, how do we satisfy needs for all while remaining within planetary boundaries? And income is only a small part of that question. So when we put this into perspective first, that can avoid to make the mistake, I think, early industrialized capitalist and now high-income economists made, which was just to press hard on the GDP button and expect you know, progress to follow. Now we, we, we do understand that it does not work like this. And we especially understand that there won't be a second shot at someone making the mistake. So if China indeed presses the GDP button for one more decade and realizes that even in China, you know, that growth is actually not uh, being as great in terms of reducing inequality and satisfying needs. Because again, the capabilities and well-being in general is only uh, about well-being to a certain level. Then after it's about something else, uh, then, then we will have a serious ecological problem. Yeah, no, I, I did want to mention that because uh, it is a point that does come up again and again when people are looking at degrowth. Um, uh, interesting. Now, I, I'm wondering about you know, how to make this all happen. Um, I mean, there's lots more we could discuss about the specific policies and which are in your work and is very interesting. But I'm just wondering uh, about how it, how it happens. So we talked a little bit about degrowth. Te- risk of it being a little bit of a technocratic or appearing, you know, e- economists and your know, kind of top-down kind of thing. And I think Stephen Masakura was talking in, in in the interview about that the analysis, you know, the technical flaws of GMP and and, and so forth, all those kind of things going on in the seventies was 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 superb. But that maybe there hadn't been enough focus on mass politics or building movements, social movements to kind of maybe generate some kind of sustained pressure for change at the grassroots level. And of course, you're talking about within different uh, countries and clearly there's you know the multilateral aspect as well. But I'm just wondering what you think needs to happen to take these ideas from you know, uh, policy discussions and fora like the one where you went to present the ideas, which, you know, obviously are real because they get translated into policies as well. But this question about uh, being quite top down. Yeah, we we need to make this ideas concrete. Um, You know, if you have someone in the street, uh, if they're if they like capitalism or if they like economic growth, they're most likely going to say yes, because they somehow assume that this is because, you know, we have a capitalist economy and because that capitalist economy has been growing, that they can afford, you know, quality health care, that their kids have quality education, that they will have generous pensions later on, that their purchasing power is what it is. Uh, the only problem with this, that this analysis is completely false. Uh, so if we need to, if we, if we bring it down to a concrete level, like if we make the question more concrete, Let's say about uh, companies and how do we organize businesses. If you ask someone, like, should businesses be organized around the objective of maximizing profits? I don't think many people, except Milton Friedman, would defend the fact that they should. Most people will tell you something like, no, of course, businesses should 
you know, focus on satisfying the needs of their customers. They should also care about the environment, care about the well-being of their workers. Somehow, you know, business should have uh, what we call in France a raison d'être. So, you know, the idea of a mission-oriented enterprise. So they, they would give you this idea of this not-for-profit business model. So now, if you were living in an economy with only not-for-profit businesses, macroeconomically, that economy would not be a growth economy. You would remove what we call, you know, a growth pressure, an engine of growth, which is this, you know, the, the striving for competitive businesses to, to gain more and more profit. Same thing if you apply the same question very concretely to consumption. Ask people like, would you rather live in a world where there are just no advertisement, no aggressive advertisement on the internet, where, you know, your personal data are not being just captured to be sold to companies to just do targeted marketing, uh, where brands are actually just you know being very descriptive about the strength and weaknesses of their product because they don't care about increasing their sales. They just want to increase the quality of their capacity to satisfy your need. Then most people will be like, ah, oh, it sounds actually quite nice. I would like this. So that's what I've been trying to do in my book is actually to translate that abstract question about capitalism or productivism or economic growth into a list of very concrete questions. And I think most people getting confronted to these questions and in reflection with their uh, you know, daily experience of our capitalist economy work, they would find another kind of economy more exciting. I give you a, a last little example, which is about working time. Uh, we know from sociologists doing reports on, on, on the matter that free time is one of the first explainer of well-being. People like to have more free time. So now, if you were to tell them that somehow if we produce and consume less, if we do away with, for example, if we don't need to have advertising anymore in an economy, you know, where you have not-for-profit businesses, well, it's useless for every company to just compete against the other by just each doing some stupid advertising. So all the people working in marketing somehow their time will be liberated, they'll be able to work in other things. And in general, if we keep applying that logic of getting the economy rid of what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs, well, we can work less together. Yeah, and there are various initiatives, aren't there, really uh, converging there, you could say. And of course, it's all in the details as well. So many different policies and so forth that 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 need to be thought about and and analysed and uh, but it's hard to get away from the, the, the I guess, idea that uh, degrowth stands in opposition to the market-driven policies that populate uh, the, the, the world today, shall we say, uh, and, and reflects a, you know, more planning, more organization, more, you know, uh, cooperation and collective action. What do you think about the possibilities for that at the moment? Um, we've seen tremendous changes uh, or actions of the, the governments with respect to COVID, um, and not always in, 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 a, in a very positive way as well, the, uh, the way the Global South has been treated and, and, and so forth was problematic, but a very changed uh, overnight uh, uh, approach to intervention and in the economy. You, you talk about a crack, a little crack or a window opening with respect to degrowth. With respect to this idea of a more uh, central planning, organized approach, what, what prospects do you see there, Timothy? 
we tend to assume somehow that a market economy is spontaneously running through, you know, the disaggregated decisions of all of us together, so that it's the ultimate democratic economy. This is false. I mean, a market economy, capitalism, is a planned economy in the sense of decisions of what to produce, how much to produce, and how to produce, are taken by a minority of individuals, those basically that are either CEOs or um, shareholders, shareholders of big companies. So the economy we have today is already planned in a certain way, but that planning is going in the wrong direction because it's a profit money oriented economy, whereas what we need is to have to a well-being oriented economy. So it's not only just, let's say, suboptimal in terms of need satisfaction. It's also very dangerous because a money oriented economy is an economy that will grow over time. And so because of the coupling of that growth, with ecological breakdown as an economy that will sink over time. So now the kind of planning we need to do is not like to switch and be like, oh, we go from this unplanned market economy to organizing a lot of meeting like Soviet Union style and having to make all these decisions. No, just we will keep making these decisions, except there will be more people at the table. When you decide on what to produce, instead of just asking, you know, the people that just want to make more money, there will be just more people discussing, do we really need this? And is producing that good and service the best way to satisfy that need? When you will decide how to produce it, you know, the engineers will be on the table and be like, oh, that plan obsolescence, I hate it. That's not, not on my watch. And they'll be also representative of environmental NGOs being like, guys, okay, I know you want to, to build this. We may need to have it, but that method of production is unsustainable and therefore we cannot have it. So for me, I see this as an exciting opportunity um, to just, you know, uh, take, bring back the economy to some form of democratic control uh, to replace this kind of wallet democracy where somehow consumers are supposed to vote with their money, which works terribly bad in an economy with high levels of inequality. Because as you can imagine, it's not a wallet democracy anymore. It's, uh, it's a wallet plutocracy. That's, that's very interesting. I, I'm mindful of the time here, Timothy, and a really important question, and I think you touched on it, the question of, you know, the, the importance of uh, prices or the idea of uh, wealth uh, and uh, having an economy based around those kind of uh, measures, um, uh, ways of thinking is, is embedded, it seems, in this uh, approach towards natural capital accounting and various different, um, many different initiatives, which are have uh, some underlying sense that, that um, you know, because of externalities, because we haven't taken into account uh, the, the, the cost or the damage to the environment, if we, if we include and quantify and put prices on natural capital, um, this is the way forward. And this will uh, uh, get rid of the externalities and it will include, uh, we, we'll end up with better policies that, 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 you know, look after the environment better and so forth. But again, underlying this is this idea of, you know, it's quantification, it's putting everything into a kind of a, a, a price and market kind of model and, um, you know, and, and it abstracts from other ways of looking at these questions, you know, moral uh, considerations about how we should relate to the environment. These ways forward do seem to have tremendous momentum. What are your thoughts on, on the various different ways this is going forward? I mean, first, perhaps you'll find this a bit shocking, uh, but 
if you're, econo if you're an economist right now, especially in the position of power, and if you truly think that the only problem we have is that you know the market ca capitalism has somehow created social and environmental externalities, and the only solution to fix this is somehow to inter internalize externalities, you should just resign and do something else. I, I, I am absolutely as serious as one can get. Like, if that's your vision of how the economy works, your vision is outdated. And it's very, very, very likely you won't be able to process all the new, more complex ways that have been developed in heterodox economics in the last decade. So this vision of somehow treating every single thing through the lens of financial capital is, is completely outdated. It is something that goes against like it basically the result of a mode of thinking um, that has developed within some schools of economics, neoclassical economics, in complete isolation. How do you explain then the tremendous momentum around these kind of initiatives, be it, you know, at the level of the World Bank and the multilateral institutions and the financial models for, for investing in the global south in, 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 in terms of the carbon offset markets, the voluntary markets, the biodiversity offsets, you know, this is, is there is tremendous momentum here. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves win-win situations. This is, you know, what economists call Pareto efficiency. Just solving a problem in the way that makes no one else uh, worse off. So, of course, if there were a silver bullet solution that just, you know, would satisfy this triple bottom line, good for people, good for profit, good for planet, well, I expect people to be excited about it. And this is why degrowth is, is slightly... Um, unsexy because it points to the fact that there is no win-win solution somehow there's going to be losers um, these losers we will have to make the decision of you know the just transition was going to bear the cost of that transition and but there's the the win-win-win scenario of you know we keep producing more we decouple this so that we actually heal the environment at the same time and that accumulation of the richest is trickling down to the poorest so that everyone is happy is just you know historical historically unprecedented it does not even work in theory <laughs> even in the actual models it doesn't stand a chance so i think the it, it is popular because it does not require us to change the system. And it's also and it's also very profitable. You know, the kinds of initiatives that are being considered to de-risk investment, to reduce the risk for the states and the global south to, to bear the cost of some of these projects or many of these projects, this is quite uh, powerful. And this must be something that one needs to think about to move to these kind of degrowth models and ways, you know, how is this in the interest of financial institutions um, who are investing? And how is it in the interest of corporations who have under current interpretations, shall we say, of, of, of uh, fiduciary responsibility are uh, all about maximizing profits? What, you know, they have considerable power. And how do you move that? I mean, that's, that's the big question. I, as a macroeconomist, I would say, you know, that we, we first need to have this discussion about economic inequality. 
the fact that these institutions have power is only because of you know decades of wealth accumulation that now is giving uh, an, a very important power to to certain individuals in making big decisions of productions that have just wide impact. So if we somehow solve the, the problem of inequality, we are already uh, improving our, let's say, our flexibility in changing the system and adapting to the climate crisis. So that's absolutely necessary. I, I cannot help but always comparing, you know, capitalism to, to a kind of, of a, a drug addict that would suddenly get excited at every single thing that is drug related. So we've said it earlier, capitalism is a system that accumulates capital. Capital is, you know, the mobilization of something to create more of that thing. And so if all of the sudden you're like, look, you know, mitigation of climate change, carbon credits, that can just open a new market and we can make a lot of money. They're going to be very excited about it. But creating more money means that that money is then going to circulate somewhere else in the economy. That's what we call the macroeconomic rebound effect. And, you know, so it's going to create kind of cascading macroeconomic effect, which when you look at environmental pressures will meet increasing our impact on nature. So from a microeconomic perspective, we understand that, you know, certain investments, uh, funds are just excited about these opportunities. And some people, uh, public entities are trying to create these markets because they somehow believe that it's going to boost their GDP and so Somehow, since we believe that GDP is good, that, that's going to be great. But I think if you somehow change your mind, your lens about viewing growth as from viewing growth as an opportunity to seeing growth as a threat, then you see that these behaviors are actually just more problematic uh, than, than exciting. Yeah, I think that's what's what's so exciting and powerful about the, the ideas you're talking about, the degrowth is the kind of systemic vision and you know pointing making people aware because it, it does seem to be such a deeply embedded uh, idea this idea of growth fascinating to think that these ideas are are, are gaining uh, some foothold and i, I guess just it, it's not really uh, exactly what, what you're talking about but you did mention heterodox economics can you say what that is and why that's exciting so the the field of economics as a science is uh, contain at least seven main schools of thought. Uh, so each of these schools of thought, you know, is giving you um, an ontological framework with specific concepts and theories to explain the same question of, you know, where does value come from? Uh, where does growth come from? How does the economy work? Historically, the, the most famous one, which people refer to as mainstream economics, is neoclassical economics. But then you have, that's the mainstream, and then heterodox economics include the six others. So ecological economics, feminist economics, post-Keynesian economics, institutional economics, Austrian economics, and Marxian economics. So what's exciting about that discussion that is referred to as pluralism in economics is the fact that for a very long time we thought that you know, economics was only neoclassical economics. And now we're discovering that for every question you're asking, there's not one answer, but at least seven. That might seem confusing, but in a world where you're trying to change the system and you're desperately looking for plan Bs and Cs and escape route and alternatives, discovering that there's been communities of people conceptualizing and studying the economy in different ways is actually uh, exciting. It's a source of wealth 
and creativity for the field as a whole. Yes, it's fascinating. And I don't know where I read this, but somebody talked about uh, economics taking an empirical turn. Uh, it sounds from what you're saying that uh, many of the ideas underlying uh, macroeconomics and economics generally don't uh, hold water. Um, when you look at them empirically, they, uh, and wh- whether and how that might change, as you say, there is no absolute truth to these. These ideas have uh, you know, propagated and also have some ideological value. Yeah, there, there is something sociologists call the superiority of economists. So, for example, Simon Kuznets, the guy, Russian-American economist who invented GDP, did some, uh, just published a little empirical study about the link between growth and inequality back at the middle of the 20th century. And what Kuznets found is what has been referred to as the Kuznets curve for decades is the fact that as a country starts to develop, so increase economic growth, inequality uh, rises, but after a certain threshold, you know, inequality decreases. That's the trickling down theory we talked about. That was a crap study. And even Kuznets in the actual study writes like, this result is 95% guessing, 5% empirical, you know. But this has become an entire completely blotted theory, which has been recently empirically demolished with the work of Thomas Piketty, you know, Capital in the 21st Century, a 1,000 book about the history of inequality that Thomas Piketty published in 2013, based on 30 years of just heavy data mining, showing that, you know, Kuznets' hypothesis is as false as it gets. So now we get the same effect of, you know, massive empirical falsification concerning decoupling. And, you know, yeah. who knows what else would it be, but we realize actually that certain theories that were actually quite crap from the beginning have been just bloated into semi-godlike laws by the fact that we trusted economists so much. <laughs> yes, um, that's a scary thought, Timothy. Um, um, what's next for you? You're working now uh, in the final stages of your book. Yeah, so in the next month, I'll finish that French book. And then I'll be able to come back full-time to university research. And I'm actually part of a project called Post-Growth Welfare Systems at the University of Lund in Western Sweden. And what I will be looking at at the question of how do you finance public services during a degrowth transition and then in the long term in a post-growth economy. So meaning that stationary economy that is, uh, you know, uh, functioning without growth. So that will be my empirical question, and I will try to uh, publish a few studies about France, uh, calculating some scenarios for prosperity without growth in France, focusing on these public services. And, uh, and I've got another book coming up in English, uh, that'll be most probably for next year, uh, on the topic of degrowth, but on the economics of degrowth, focusing on the economic obstacles to uh, starting degrowth right now. So that's an exciting project, but more more to that next year. <laughs> Hopefully we get a chance to talk again. Uh, it sounds like you have a very full agenda. Uh, and thank you so much, Timothée, for a really fascinating discussion, uh, very wide ranging, and uh, all the great work you're doing to, to uh, on the degrowth front uh, to communicate and share these important ideas. Thank you so much. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. 
using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.